Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Kaiser Education Series. My name is Gabe Derman. I'm a human performance education specialist at Kaiser, and I'll be moderate, moderating today's panel alongside my teammate, Mike Compton. Today's discussion will focus on entrepreneurship in the field of human performance. Our three panelists have well-rounded backgrounds. Each of them has a master's in a sport or sport performance-related field, spent time as a certified strength and conditioning coach, and all three have carved their own path into the business side of human performance. We are thrilled to have them on the KES with us tonight and look forward to learning. Our first panelist is Ali Kirshner. Ali is the Director of Creative Strategy at Art of Coaching, where she oversees marketing and content creation while co-facilitating workshops. Prior to her current position, she was the Director of Sport Performance for Stanford Women's Basketball Team, uh, as well as the Women's Golf Program. Captain of the Women's Soccer Team, she graduated from Duke University and went to Kansas, where she completed her graduate assistantship. Our second panelist is Josh Bontel. Josh is the Vice President of Performance at Future and is a founding team member. Prior to Future, Josh spent seven seasons as the Director of Men's Basketball Performance at Purdue University, where he also coached two Olympic medalist divers. Before that, he spent three years with the Chicago Bulls as a strength conditioning coach and also spent time in the Northeast at Mike Boyle Strength Conditioning. He earned his undergrad degree from the University of Wisconsin and his master's from Edith Cowan. Our third and final panelist is Dan Giuliani. Dan is a co-founder and CEO of Volt Athletics. He was named a top 25 consumer health tech executive in 2020 and 2021, and is a founding member of the Rolling Stone Culture Council. He taught master's level sport performance at the University of Washington, Seattle, where he's also a mentor for the men's basketball program. He played football at Kobe College and earned his master's in sport admin and leadership from Seattle University. A reminder for all of our attendees tonight, you can drop any questions you have in the chat and we'll allow some time at the end of the discussion to address them to our panel. So let's do it. Our first question is directed to each of our panelists. Uh, we're gonna start with Allie here. What made you wanna make the transition to the entrepreneurship side of human performance? Allie, like I said, we'll begin with you. You had just won a national championship at Stanford with the women's basketball program. What made you wanna aim for something different? Uh, yeah, great question. So I, I was kind of thinking about this prior to the call. Um, and I think, you know, growing up in the Bay Area and in Silicon Valley in particular, I didn't, I underestimated how much of an effect that might have on my future. And I have two parents, both are entrepreneurs, both have their own companies. I grew up in a household where changing jobs every two years was kind of the norm. Um, and starting your own thing was sort of like the the gold standard of, of your career. And so I was actually talking to my parents about this. And, and I think it was sort of just ingrained in me early on to kind of want to be involved in something from the grassroots or create something from the ground up. And while, while it wasn't conscious at the time, um, I definitely think that influenced my decision to, to eventually jump into the space that I am now. And um, I think that was a large part, but also just I found myself learning and wanting to think about and solve problems around people and creativity and communication a lot more than I did around programming and and exercise. And so I was like, you know, I can obviously do that on the floor and build relationships with athletes, but I still, at the end of the day, have to program. That's what I'm paid to do. And, um, and I was like, well, how can I find a, how can I find a position that allows me to do more of the things that kind of really fire me up right now? So that's when I, that's when I made the leap, but yeah, the timing was interesting. I think for, for most people, um, I had, you know, been thinking about it for a long time. So hope that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate that. And Josh, how about yourself? You're, you know, coming off seven years as director of men's basketball strength conditioning there, director of performance at Purdue. What made you want to take a leap 
you know, you maybe had an opportunity for other strength conditioning opportunities, but maybe make that leap outside of strength conditioning and into kind of the entrepreneur side of things. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, um, I was always that kid that just had wild dreams. So, you know, growing up, I, I wasn't that good at basketball, but in my mind, I was going to play for the Bulls one day. And so for me, I think it was when I was 22, I got an internship with the Bulls. And, and really at that point, that was my dream job. I was an unpaid intern. Um, but for me, you know, I didn't care. Like I, I had made it. And I think to have that happen um, when I was so young, immediately out of college, um, forced me to, to start to think bigger and to also start to think beyond just the destination. Um, because, you know, I think I'd spent all that time, I'd taken so many steps to put myself in a position where in my mind it was by the time I'm 35, um, I'll be, you know, I'll have the opportunity to go and be the strength coach with the Bulls. And now here I am 22. Um, and even as an intern for me, you know, I'd, I'd kind of made it and, um, I wasn't sure necessarily what my path would be, but, um, you know, I, I started exploring what else was out there. And, you know, for a while I thought it was, maybe I want to be a high performance director and, you know, have an impact beyond just kind of strength and conditioning. Um, and had the opportunity to scratch that itch in a lot of ways while I was at Purdue. Um, but what I realized along the way was the thing that I enjoyed the most um, was being able to help other people and not just our athletes, but actually, you know, the, the interns and the assistants and colleagues that, I was able to work with really helping them to, you know, dream bigger for themselves and helping them to pursue those opportunities. And so I realized, you know, towards the end of my time with Purdue that I wanted something that gave me a bigger platform to do that for many more people, even beyond strength and conditioning and beyond basketball. Um, and really I could have never predicted my path would lead me to this small startup in, in San Francisco. But I think that's the piece of, you know, just kind of doing the best job where you are, but having your eyes up to, to opportunity um, and, and kind of speaking things into existence and um, the opportunity came and, you know, saw the chance to have that platform. So I, I took the leap. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. It's cool to see some of the things that you've started doing now. So uh, thank you for sharing. And Dan, I'm going to ask you the same question. You were coaching football. You had a little bit of strength conditioning experience and you're actually doing some play by play uh, for Seattle sports as well. Um, what made you want to make that leap um, as well into the entrepreneurship side? Yeah, a bit of a bit of a weird path that actually brings in some of what Ali uh, described and and some of what Josh described too. So you know, I was a I was a Division three football player, liberal arts college uh, graduate. Liberal arts is great for some things, um, like getting very well rounded skills, uh, but not being particularly good at any one thing, and really not being focused um, coming out of college. So I. I uh, tried a few different things. I knew I loved sports. I knew I loved coaching, um, spent some time in the weight room, got interested in strength and conditioning as a career um, in 2008, 2009. 
and, uh, and got a taste of life at the high school level, the college level, and then in the private sector. And, and as you said, I was, I was doing a few different things on the side, including some play-by-play -play broadcasting, um, which I kept doing through the early days of, of getting Volt off the ground uh, because we didn't, we didn't really have any income for a little while. So I had to ply my trade behind the mic. Um, but we, uh, we started working on, on Volt. And the reason that I, I took this, uh, this leap uh, back in, in, uh, in 09, 2010 was really just, as Josh said, maximizing impact. Um, you know, one of the things I got frustrated with fairly quickly, it was really two things got me frustrated in the strength conditioning industry. One was having to work my way up. Um, I respect people who grind and who are willing to climb the ladder in any industry, but coaching in particular, I mean, you need to have a lot of breaks go your way. You have to do a lot of really hard work often underpaid, often long hours, mornings, nights. We all know kind of what this lifestyle often requires. Um, and, and that didn't really appeal to me. And honestly, as I think back on it, I, I didn't want to wait my turn. Um, I wanted to see if I could make a, a bigger impact sooner. Um, and I came from an entrepreneurial family, um, like, like Ali did. Um, you know, I, I grew up with, with the, um, the, the, the lessons being learned every day that when there's when there's something to do, why not go do it? Um, you take that leap, you try to bring value, you try to, to bring unique creative solutions to the to the world. And so um, I was working in the private sector, strength conditioning. I was training teams and, uh, and individual athletes, mostly high school level in the Seattle area. And, and I saw the amount of, um, of of cost that was going into getting access to good training, uh, typically paid by the parents or, or sometimes booster clubs. And the challenge of of getting access to high quality people full time at, uh, at at high schools in the area and at local colleges, and so we looked at it and said, "Hey, I think we can help here. I think we can solve some problems. I think we can bring some new technology into the mix that uh, helps more people get access to to better training." Um, and that was the uh, and that was the spark. And we decided we wanted to to dive in. Um, and and once that really um, you know hit hit uh hit my brain i i knew that's what i wanted to push into uh so there was really no question and no doubt at that point uh once we figured out we could have an impact yeah and it sounds like from the three of your answers the big word that stood out to me was impact um you know as on, on the coaching level if you're working with a couple athletes say even up to 50 like you know the level of impact that you can have but it sounds like you're able to do that with the transition on the entrepreneurship side uh do that on a larger scale right? Have an impact on a larger scale. So that's great. And appreciate you all sharing. Um, Dan, I'm going to go back to you on this one and give, uh, give the other two a chance to answer as well. With that jump that you made, that leap that you made, were you ever concerned about failing, right? You went from a world that you knew a ton about, you had experience, education, familiarity. Was it scary taking that leap of faith? And did you think about like, okay, what if I fail? Yeah, you know, failure for me was, was never a concern. Um, and I remember talking to my co-founder really early in the in the process. We were talking about what it could be and did we want to, you know, really pursue this with our lives. And and I pitched to him that you know, even if it even if we don't succeed by traditional metrics, even if we don't uh, build an amazing company that we can sell for a, a lot of money, you know, think about everything we're going to learn. Think about all the stuff we're going to figure out along the way. Um, because when you start a company, you, you especially your first time. You really don't know what you don't know, um, and and thankfully, right? Because things start to come up within a few days, to a few weeks, to a few months, and all of a sudden you're doing something you never thought you'd have to be doing and solving problems you hadn't imagined would ever come up. Um, 
And I never thought of it as a success or failure uh, proposition by a traditional setting. We knew the numbers, right? I think 98% is usually the number that gets thrown out for likelihood of failure um, when you start a company. And my guess is in sport and fitness, it's probably even um, even higher. Uh, it's, it's a tough market to build in for many reasons, but you know, there was just always going to be a win there, right? It's, it's the experience. It's, it's the opportunity. It's really kind of feeling that the, the time and energy you're putting into, to your world is, um, you know, is, is, a, is accruing value for, for yourself and for others, um, which, which is honestly a, a lot of fun. Um, what I did worry about a little bit more is the feeling, you know, when you're, I was 27, started a company, all of a sudden I have a CEO title, right? And so I'm walking around and I'm in a setting, I'm shaking hands, I'm meeting people and I hand out my card and it says Dan Giuliani, co-founder and CEO. And I'm looking at these people looking back at me and I'm thinking, boy, I hope they don't figure out that it's a company of three people and that, you know, I just made up this title, you know, a, a few months ago. Um, because that's really, for me, it wasn't failure. It was, it was, how do you get past that feeling of like, you know, I'm going to get found out at some point that this is just something that we started. And then after a while, you realize that that's how everything starts. That's how everybody ever gets going in whatever they do. Um, and so it was less about failure for me than it was just getting over that hump of, of getting used to the fact that, you know, yeah, we, we created this world, but it's, it's a world that we're living in now. And it's, it's as authentic and genuine and, um, and real as, as anything else. Yeah, that's great. And Josh, I saw you kind of nodding your head earlier. Anything to add on that and uh, either what Dan said or your, your own experience with being afraid to fail? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, I would say the best part of starting a company, Dan, is is you can give yourself whatever the hell title you want. So, uh, you know, it, it uh, can open up a lot of doors for you just in that. But um, I think the the point that Dan made of how much you stand to learn, um, that was probably the biggest selling point for me um, is not just the, the things that you don't know, but the things that you don't even know that you don't know. And, and now you're going to be responsible for it. Um, and you have to be resourceful. You have to figure it out because either you figure it out or you're one of those, you know, 98%, 99%, whatever it is that, that fails. Um, but I do think if you're going to make a leap like this into entrepreneurship, it's important to start in my mind to start from a place of, you know, failure as an expectation. And what I mean by that is lay out what is the worst case scenario. So before you even make the jump as you're making the decision, and this, this was the advice that I got was, you know, go through and, and plan for and expect that the worst case scenario will happen. So lay out what that is. Um, and you know, you, you kind of got to be okay with that. And, you know, I think in my case and Ali, I would imagine, um, for you making a similar transition, leaving after winning a national championship. Um, I think the worst case scenario for me was like, I can always go back. Like if this fails, I can go back into the world that, that I came from. Um, and you know, the thing that my decision-making circle, was all saying to me. And I was really fortunate because it was people who I'm close friends with, who've all been very successful in the tech and startup world. And I knew nothing about the world. So they were able to, you know, help me understand how to view the opportunity and what questions to ask. And when it came down to it, the thing they all said to me was, you, you have to do this 
100% this will fail in one year. Either in our case, we're a, we're a venture-backed company, so we don't raise our next round, our company doesn't exist, or you absolutely hate it. One of those two things, if not both, is a certainty will happen in one year. With that in mind, you have to do this because in one year, you'll grow five years professionally just with everything you're going to get exposed to, everything you can learn and the relationships you can build. Um, and credit to my, my co-founders, the thing that they said to me, which is I think really unique in the Silicon Valley world was they're like, Josh, just come do this with us for even a year or two. And then if you want to start your own company, you'll have the relationships to, to go and do that. And, you know, I think when it was put to me like that, it was something I had to do. Um, and, and I would say the last part of it is then once you leap, failure is no longer an option to, to Dan's point. It's like now burn the boats like that. It's not an option. I'm not going back. Um, this is going to work. And, and you just kind of figure it out along the way. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, I really appreciate that. And um, it's a great answer and great perspective. And Allie, for you, OK, now you have that decision time. You're at Stanford and you have an opportunity you're going through it practically in your head trying to make that decision eventually it comes okay what if i'm not any good at this right what if what if this doesn't work out or you'd be in the job what if what if this doesn't work out take us through that yeah no i mean i think my my situation was maybe a little bit different in that i was joining a team that, that had been doing what they were doing for you know a year two years at that point um, relatively successfully. Um, sorry, I have an angry dog. Um, but anyway, they um, they had been doing it already, and so like I knew I was the team I was joining. One, they were you know former strength coaches. Brett has done this, you know, and and so I wasn't joining a group of entrepreneurs or business people that I had nothing in common with. So like I knew a strength coach could make this leap successfully, and also the things that we were doing are things that I was used to doing, right? Like teaching people communication and leadership and um, how to have hard conversations. These are things that I do already. It was just like um, a matter of, could I teach that instead of just do it? Right. Um, so I, I think the fear of failure was, was minimal um, in that I trust our team and um, I knew I was going to build skills more so than I never built before. Um, and I love learning. So I was like, all right, bring it on. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the upside was I can help so many people. Um, so like the, the fear of failure was low there. Uh, but I, I think the risk is always, um, you know, joining a small company that's just getting started, like anything could happen, right? Like in COVID, uh, I was not a part of the company yet, but uh, we had to cancel like 90%, if not all of our live events, which is a major source of revenue for our company. And so I saw that they had to cancel all of these live events. And then the company pivoted and we went mostly online and we're able to make that work with our online mentoring and communities that we built during that. So like even seeing the adaptation and the, the ability for the company to mold and move swiftly uh, was exciting to me. I was like, okay, if we can make it through COVID when we cut all of our revenue, that to me is like a, a mark of a team that's willing to experiment and try and fail and get better. And that was exciting to me. I was like, okay, we'll figure it out. Like it, I trust myself to figure it out. I trust these people to figure it out. If our company looks nothing like it looks now, that's okay too. But um, yeah, I think if I, if I, if I'm honest, the biggest thing that I was worried about when jumping was what other people would think about me. 
Um, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm leaving a profession. You know, I, I got the question a lot, like, are you okay? Like what's, what's wrong? You just won a national championship. And so, um, those questions came, but I was really confident in why it left. It was just a matter of like letting, I, I felt like I was letting down mentors. I felt like I was letting down people I'd worked with who had, uh, helped me get to where I was. And then I was leaving that to walk away and do something else. So that was definitely more of a concern than probably the failure piece. Yeah, Mike, you want to go ahead? Yeah, uh, Allie, I'm going to come back to you here uh, quickly. Do you feel, um, and Dan and Josh, feel, to chime, feel free to chime in after as well, but do you feel like your coaching background helped establish like the mindset to embrace failure? Because like you're in the trenches with athletes, you know, wins and losses is a big deal in sports. So understanding that you know what failure looks like and you're okay with it. So would you say that coaching background has kind of established that mindset for you in preparation for that next step? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I would say my mindset in coaching had to switch before that was true. Uh, Cause when I was a young coach, I think you're married to your programming and you, you like things controlled and the way that they are, but uh, towards the end of my, my career in the weight room, um, I'd really adopted a, a model and thanks a lot to Molly and some other people I know that are here uh, of play and creativity and uh, experimentation and, um, you know, relied less on this really formal programming, which was so beneficial because uh, especially during COVID, we, I didn't know how, what I was going to get. Like I would have athletes show up um, in all sorts of states we might not have practice. We might have practice. Somebody tested positive, you know, have to move to Vegas for six weeks, whatever it was. Um, and that ability to adapt to whatever, I think that that part of coaching translated completely because now, you know, same thing. I, I wake up every day. I have new problems to solve. Entrepreneurship to me is just problem solving. So um, I think once I was able to uh, use that philosophy in coaching, that was the one that transferred uh, really seamlessly. Would add to something to that, Ali. I think you're you're totally right on. There's some parts of coaching that work really well. I think with an entrepreneur, um, an entrepreneur's life, it, there's certainly that that kind of battling together, that shared uh, adversity, and overcoming those challenges. That's so deeply imbued in athletics and in sports. Um, and, and you like those challenges because you don't want it to be easy. It's not that gratifying when it's easy. You want to kind of have that struggle and overcome it together. And so early stages of startup world, for sure, you're a small team, a whole bunch of stuff, all these problems come flying at you and you got, you have to overcome them. Um, one thing that I think actually is, a, is something to overcome as a coach moving into, to entrepreneurship, um, is that sometimes in sports, you just want, you really push on the effort and you push on, Hey, if we just want it more, if we can just give it, you know, 110% as if that was possible. Um, you really, we sort of, we rely a lot on that just deep, you know, dig deep down and just give it what you got and you can, and you can overcome. Building a company is not quite like that. Um, I mean, it requires a ton of hard work, but you can't just force it. And, and there's sometimes, I know the lesson I learned early in our, um, in our company's development, that, you know, there's a lot of different types of people, right? You're working with engineers, you're working with designers, you're working with sales and, and, and customer success and marketing and, and investors and all these different stakeholders. And, and you're not necessarily one team of, 
ex-sport trying to win this championship, right? You're different types of personalities with different approaches. And sometimes people need to be, uh, you know, a little bit softer touch. Sometimes other people need to be, you know, pushed a little bit harder. And so in some ways, it's like guiding a team towards a, a goal or a championship. But in other ways, it is, you know, there's a lot more nuance to it. And sometimes you have to actually take a step back and pull off and, and, and push off the pedal a little bit to give people a chance to breathe and, uh, and, and kind of let their creativity um, come to the surface. Uh, so I found myself having to, to dial back some of my natural coaching instincts in some moments, uh, but finding that blend and that balance, I think, is, is part of the fun. Yeah, I think you, um, and I think you hit it, Dan, and, and that was one of my biggest learnings early on was recognizing that in sport, we do have this sort of shared goal, ultimately, of winning a championship. Um, but when you're building a company, uh, especially at the early stages, you don't yet fully know exactly how you're going to get there, what it's going to look like, um, or, you know, the many pivots that might, might occur along the way. And so um, that was one where it probably set me back early on because especially my style and in, in building a team and what I had done at, at Purdue was always very much a, a player led culture. Um, and it took me a little bit to realize that bringing that approach to, you know, building a, building a company, um, what, what was hard because I was just assuming that there was that shared objective, but in, in all reality, you know, our team all had different visions of what our company could be or should be. Um, and so that was something I had to learn was like, I really had to set that vision that much more because it, it doesn't already exist. Um, but and then I think, you know, just echoing off what both Ali and Dan said, you know, a lot of it, too, is just the the communication piece and building relationships, I think, you know, and that and that's one of the greatest strengths that you develop as a coach is like, all the different people that you have to interact with from the player to the head coach, the AD or GM to boosters, to parents. Um, and when you start to learn how to adapt your approach to be able to connect to all these different people from different backgrounds, that transcends anything. Like you can learn the skill set, but that piece um, I, I think will put you in position to be successful. Um, and, and I think the last piece is just, when you learn what it takes to win, um, I don't know, there's, there's just something about it. Like I, I've actually indexed on hiring a lot of, you know, naturally our position is, is coaches, but um, for our company as a whole, thinking about bringing on people who have coaching backgrounds or who have athletic backgrounds, um, because there's just something about those experiences. Like when you've gotten your ass kicked and you have a long bus ride back or plane ride back and, and you can sit in it or you can figure it out and you, and you can figure out what went wrong, what we need to do to, to correct it. Um, and I think there's something to be said for that, especially in that early, uh, early days of the company where you don't know, you don't have direction and you just got to make it work one way or another. I have one more small thing to add um, that, that I just thought of when Josh was talking. The other thing that's really wild about transitioning from sport to um, uh, you know, business is the pacing and the schedule. So you don't have a season that you're working towards. You don't have a championship that somebody tells you, hey, this is the best you can do. If you win this, 
you've done it. You have succeeded. This is the national championship, the conference championship. Um, these are the player awards, the coach awards. These are the things you can get that show achievement. The goalposts are constantly moving when you're starting a company, right? Like you might think, oh, my goal is just to stay in business for a year. Okay, well, now my goal is to bring in a million dollars of revenue. Well, now my goal is to grow 100% year over year. Well, now my, and it changes as the company evolves and, and adapts. But what's even tougher is that you don't get to change on seasonality, right? It's not like you go through your, you know, 2010 season and then now it's 2011 and here's a new set of goals and you're working off of the same pace. And then in 2012, you get to do, these things change whenever and however they have to, to adapt to the, to the circumstances. And so what that means is, you know, you might be developing a product and building and building and building, and then you release, you have this big launch party and you're super excited. Well, it's not like you get to take the next day off. It's not like you have a bye week It means that all of a sudden you've got a new product out in production that real people are using. And if it's not working perfectly, you're going to need to fix those bugs and you need to get right back on it right away. Right. So there isn't a lot of there isn't a lot of downtime. There's a lot of room to breathe. And when there is, it's because you've created it, right? You've sort of almost artificially said, look, we need to find a little bit of balance here and we need to, to create a little bit of rigor in our scheduling uh, because the, the pacing of building a company is really as fast as you can go. And you don't get the benefit of that seasonality and that opportunity to reset and start recruiting and kind of move in through a different calendar. It's a really different, it's a different headspace to get into. I, I would echo that as well. Like, you know, in, in our company at Futures, you know, we're, we have now hundreds of coaches who've come from largely, you know, college, pro, uh, Olympic sport, private facilities. And I would say that statement right there has been the biggest adjustment. Um, I would say all of them have had to make and myself included is the goalposts are always moving. Because if we're having success, the more success that we're having, the bar is raising, you know, the, 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 the problems that we have to solve are actually growing exponentially, because now the opportunity is even bigger. And so that was a learning that we had to have where even in our onboarding now with new coaches, it's something I make a point in their second or third week to say, hey, you're going to feel like the goalposts are always moving, you're probably going to say that. And that's because they are, and they should be, and they need to be. And if at any point they're not, that's probably not a good sign uh, for us. But it's, you know, I would say that's probably the number one biggest adjustment I've I've seen with with our team having to make. Yeah, that's really great. Um, appreciate all that. And I think Josh, you said the word adaptability, um, the, the ability to adapt. And um, we're going to shift a little bit, of just like the day to day. So. Um, Allie's question is for you, um, at Art of Coaching with Brett, you do a tremendous job of helping athletes, coaches, and corporate leaders enhance their understanding of human behavior and build soft skills like communication, problem solving, adaptability, which soft skill in your opinion has been the most valuable for you since beginning at Art of Coaching? And what is something that you've been trying really hard to work on to improve? Yeah, I was like, this is sort of like a, um, uh, a question, an inception question for us. Cause like we are a communication company. So like what communication question skill do I think is most important? Um, very meta. Um, so I think for us, right. Like we're, we're nerds for words. We're, we're like, we're deep in the science of communication and everything around what you just said. I think one of the things that we've highlighted as 
something that we want to work on as a company and just as humans in general is how to have better conflict. Um, like it's really easy for us to agree with each other and like be like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. Right. Create an echo chamber. Um, and I think having a healthy dose of dissent and disagreement and leaning into conflict, especially as a small team is something that has been the most important shift that we've had. Um, I, and I think hiring for people that aren't yes men. And um, I, I think that has been something that's not, it's not easy to do because I like these people. I do agree with them most of the time, but disagreeing with yourself, disagreeing with your team members is such a vital skill and can be cultivated as a skill, right? Because there's a, there's a very specific way that you can say things um, and create an environment where that is productive as opposed to obviously what it could be, which is very toxic. So I think for our team, that's something that we're trying to, to do better. And, and I personally, um, you know, I, you know, I'm a problem solver, so I, I hate conflict by nature, but like, I've realized the benefit of it and sitting in it and just like working your way through it and the creativity and the problem solving that comes out of that has been monumental for us. Yeah, and um, Josh, I'm kind of give you the same question. You went from working obviously with like head sport coaches, uh, athletes, and now you're shifting to kind of user design, CEOs, CFOs. There's a lot of other people that are a part of that process. Um, what to you has kind of been the biggest skill um, that has helped you in that transition? Or what have you been working on an area of yourself to kind of help um, be the best person and best worker that you can be? Yeah. Um, and kind of like Ali was saying, it's, it, it's such a loaded question. I think on, on the long term, um, the thing that stands out to me of, of, you know, over, over the long, uh, kind of time horizon, just being successful is, um, being a giver, you know, just, and, and again, going back to the ability to, to connect with people, but, truly helping other people without expecting anything in return. And so, you know, I always talk about um, a giver is someone who does whatever they can, whenever they can, because they can to help someone else. Um, and, you know, I think that's something in a, in a short time horizon can feel like, you know, you're maybe you're getting taken advantage of or whatever it might be. Um, but I think, you know, for us in, in building future and, and from the early days, um, a lot of our success, I point to of, of, you know, having that approach for me throughout my career, because I think that's what a lot has allowed me to start to build a team to attract talent to have, you know, really high level people want to uh, come and follow me and, and work together. Um, and then I think, you know, over the last four years, it's what's made our team collectively so successful is like across the board, our entire team, like we've hired for that. And so everyone on our team will literally drop everything to help, you know, their teammate, the person next to them. Um, and then, you know, in, in the, in the day to day, I would, I would echo what, uh, what Ali said. I, I think that's, it's such a hard thing, like healthy conflict or disagreement. And, you know, the thing that I've started to recognize is I, I think of it as having, learning to have compassion as opposed to empathy. I think especially, you know, for a lot of us who do have that mindset that are, you know, we're givers, we put other people first, 
you want so bad to please people um, and, and to also like solve their problems. Um, but sometimes you're not going to be able to solve their problems. And so by you trying to do that in the short term, they're going to like you, you're going to make them happy, but in the long term, they're going to resent you because you're not telling them the truth. And so it's, it's learning to have compassion. And to me, compassion is, I still care about this person. I still, you know, recognize that this is how they feel. I'm not going to say, oh, I don't agree with your feeling. What you feel is what you feel. Um, but then I may need to share, you know, some truths that they don't want to hear, you know, or recognizing that um, in some cases, you know, maybe, maybe it's not a fit um, or, or whatever it might be. So I, I would, I would echo that. That was probably my toughest transition in terms of being successful day to day was managing those conversations. Yeah. And Dan, how is, uh, how has your leadership style or your day-to-day changed from year one, right? You're year 11 now about, so kind of how has your leadership style changed from the beginning of Vault until now? I think I'm a much calmer leader. Um, early in, uh, early in our, in our startup journey, you know, you're, you're just grasping you, anything that feels like it might be the thing you're sort of, you know, you're getting excited, but you're trying to temper your enthusiasm. You're bringing the energy, doing a lot of pitching. You're really putting yourself out there as, as a representative of your idea to, Hey, we think we're trying to do this thing. What do you think? Um, and it, it really takes a lot of your own energy to kind of bring to the table there. Um, as, as we become more of a mature team, and we have a larger team and have a more established brand and, and products. Um, I've been able to let other people take on some of those responsibilities, which has been really fantastic for me and opportunistic and great for them as well. Um, and so I think a lot of what I try to do these days is, is be much more of a coach and a little bit less of a coach player. You know, when you first start, right, you're, you're doing everything. I mean, my co-founder and I did literally everything for multiple years. We brought on one more person and the three of us did everything because there's nobody else. Now I don't have to do everything, which is great. And my goal is to put my employees in a position to be successful, right? So it is very much in that way, becoming more again, like coaching a, a sport um, and, and coaching in the, in the weight room, right? I mean, you're trying to put your athletes in a position to be successful. And then they're the ones who are actually doing the lift or actually, uh, performing on the field or the court. And that's very much how, how the Volt world has evolved over, over the years. Um, and, and that's suited, uh, my interests for sure, because I, I really feel like part of our, part of what we're here to do in building this organization is to help the people within it um, you know, become the best version of themselves that, that they can be, um, and then go off and do what, whatever brings them joy. Um, and that's a little different than it was when it was for just a, a few of us. And we had to kind of, you know, get everything over the finish line, um, all on our own. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and, uh, we'll talk a little bit, there's an overlap here, um, in the business world and, and what you're involved in all three of you and coaching, right? Coaching athletes. And that is the idea of creating buy-in, right? Having uh, buy-in is critical for success. You know, at Volt uh, with the teams and the groups and individuals that are using the app, Josh, a future where the users have to be bought in um, as well as the coaches you employ. And then at Art of Coaching, Ali, where you have a course bought in uh, that's dedicated to helping individuals create buy-in 
with the people that they lead. Dan, I'm gonna start with you and then give Josh and Ellie a chance to answer. How have you helped shape the respective, com uh, your company, um, both uh, to help foster an environment of buy-in on the user end? Like how do you create a product that gets people to not just try it out, but keeps them coming back for more? Yeah, we have a really uh, complex buy-in puzzle uh, on our side. Uh, and maybe this is not all that unusual, but it feels like a, a challenge, right? So we often have, we work in a few different sectors. And our basic, for, for folks who don't know how Volt works, it's, a, it's software designed to help coaches deliver better training to athletes, and it's designed to help athletes access better training. By athletes, that's sport, that's tactical, um, and that's, you know, everyday people like, uh, like you and me. Um, and so what that ends up meaning is our end user is typically somebody who's got the app in front of them and it's telling them what to do for their workout and they're doing the workout and they're, they're punching in their, um, their results and there's a feedback loop that then it makes adjustments and so on and so forth. Those people who are actually doing the workouts aren't always the people who have decided to make the purchase. In fact, they might not want to be there at all. They might not want to be in that weight room. And sometimes they are really frustrated that they have to do this workout because somebody told them to. Um, and, you know, so you think of your, um, think of your division three uh, uh, sports team home for the summer, right? They're going to their, to whatever weight room they have access to. They're doing their training. Um, if they're using Volt and their, their team is using Volt, that's because their coaches made that decision, but they are still being held accountable by their teammates who are doing the workout. So we really try to think about what life is like for those, for those users. How do we make decisions within the, uh, the, the UX, within the UI? How does the experience really dial into making it easy and efficient for them, giving them the positive feedback that can help motivate them to continue to, to keep going? Um, how do we help people connect together? Um, it, it can be an interesting, interesting puzzle, right? So that's on the, on, on the end user side. We also have this coach platform and for coaches, especially coaches with athletic departments, and we see this in strength conditioning all over the place where you have a huge variety of sport coaches who have different uh, perspectives on what they think the athletes should be doing uh, or whether they think the athletes should be doing any strength, uh, strength work at all. Um, and so when we first, uh, I remember in 2013 was the first time we brought our full athletic department package um, to market. And so I'm talking to these athletic directors and I had to sit in, in some of these um, rooms where all 22 coaches, all the head coaches were brought in by the athletic director. It's like, hey, this is Dan. He's going to tell us about this about Volt, right? And I'm looking around the room and I can tell there's a good 10 to 12 of them who are really gonna hate me, like right away. Because for whatever reason, they either don't like lifting, they don't like the athletic director, they, you know, they, they're, they're pissed off because their budget got slashed. Like whatever the reason is, I'm standing there, they've never met me and I already know they're pissed, right? And then there's five or 10 that are, you know, sort of open to the idea, right? And then you end up after the, that conversation realizing that getting 22 people who all have their own little autonomous worlds of, of their sport that they know really well to get um, to get all aligned and on the same page about a consistent methodology, a consistent sort of uh, you know programming structure uh, is a really is really uh, uphill battle. Um, and so we build a lot of our software and a lot of our tooling with that in mind. We know that it's not something that each person is often has often chosen to to use. They've been told they have to use it, or it's been purchased as a resource for them, which is different. Than, than a lot of other uh, products and, and services. 
Um, one of our challenges as well, being a, a consumer facing application, if you go to the app store and you see the star levels, um, you know, we take a lot of this for granted when we're not the ones actually managing the, um, you know, the apps themselves, but it's extremely hard to keep a high rating in the app store. You know, I think ours is something like 4.7 these days. If you're at 4.7, you want to stay at 4.7 and a high school kid gives it one star because they hate working out. You're going to need, I think it's 11 five-star ratings to offset the one one-star rating to keep you at your, your 4.7. So there's, you know, our world is a lot of managing the expectations, helping people be successful in the, in the work that they're doing, but knowing that, no, this is hard, right? It's working out's not easy. It's not Netflix. You can't sit on the couch and just hit a button and get stronger. Um, you actually have to do the work. And so, um, you know, setting good expectations and reinforcing that the work that's being done is, uh, is effective is, has been a key piece of that. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, and Josh, how about a future uh, creating that buy-in for the, on the user end? Yeah, and I think one of the things just to, to start off is, um, and this might be semantics, but a distinction that I always talk about is, is not thinking about it in terms of creating buy-in, but rather building trust. Um, and the reason I make that distinction and the reason I, I think that distinction is important is because to me, I think buy-in presumes that you sort of do what I'm telling you to do because I'm right. Um, and that's not necessarily the case, especially as it relates to, you know, coaching. I think ultimately the goal is, is forming a partnership and, you know, early on in that partnership with, with coaching, um, you know, a lot of the direction and the education is going to come from you as a coach. In fact, you know, early, early on, it might be nearly all of it. Um, but over time, hopefully that should evolve and that evolves by, um, forming a partnership. And I think you do that by building trust and now involve and empower that other person. And so the thing that we talk about at Future, which we stole from the hospitality world is collecting and connecting dots. Um, and, and it's even one step before that, which is turning over rocks. So if you think like turning over rocks is just, you know, genuinely being curious, taking an active interest in that person. Um, learning about them and, and genuinely like wanting to know more about them. And so through that process, I think you're able to start to collect dots and those dots could be all different types of information about their background, what they love, what they hate, you know, where, where they grew up, their favorite movie, you know, whatever it might be. And these are connection points. And so, you know, to build that trust over time, how it comes is, you know, when the opportunities present, you're connecting those dots, you're showing that you listened, you're showing that you cared, you're showing that you remembered. And I think in doing that, ultimately, what you're doing is, you know, you're, you're essentially forming a tribe with that person. And those connection points are things that start to identify that person with you as being us, as opposed to being, you know, them. Um, and, and so, um, I think that's a big thing. And then as it relates to the client experience, um, it's something that we talk about all the time and, you know, uh, probably similar to Dan, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's an app. So um, our members, like they have their coach, their coach is checking in with them, you know, every single day, um, following up after workouts, things like that, but they have to, they have to 
open up their app to see these messages. They have to open up their app to, to do the workout. So they have to start to create a relationship even just with the, the product. And so what we think about is by and large habit loops. And, and so for us in particular, the reason we exist as a company is because 80% of our population is not active enough, if at all. So truly we're trying to help four out of five people that have tried a bunch of stuff and nothing has ever worked for them. And so the big piece is just getting them to build a habit. And so we think a lot about, you know, obviously what are, what are the different triggers, the behavior that we want? And there's multiple, it could be interacting with their coach, but largely it's working out. And then the reward of that workout, but there's one more step in that process um, that I think especially applies to a product like ours, which is the investment that the user is making. And so oftentimes that investment is after a workout, our members, you know, they're telling their coach what exercises they liked, what they didn't like. Um, maybe my, my knee hurt on this exercise or, you know, whatever it is, but they're making an investment that should, when it comes back around, make their experience even better. And over time it should get, you know, better and better and better because I've, I've made this investment. And I think the same thing applies if I'm coaching an athlete, the more they share with me, that's truly an investment on their part. And if I'm never coming back and connecting the dot, you know, when it comes back around, then if, if I'm an athlete or if I'm, you know, a member on future, I sort, I sort of go, well, why the hell am I putting all this effort and it's not making my experience any better. And for us building a product, they're going to leave and, and go somewhere else. Yeah, Mike, I'll go to you in a second. I'm going to give Allie just a chance to answer that too, um, uh, either through your own perspective or also I know you have that, like I mentioned, uh, you have a program there uh, with Art of Coaching bought in or trust mm -hmm. building maybe. Yeah. Um, so uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and uh, your experience with that? For sure. No, um, Josh, I love what you said. Um, I actually, I, I, so I think that the word buy-in, right, we say that uh, meanings are in people, not in words. And I think, unfortunately, the word buy-in has gotten kind of a bad rap. Um, and I think that because it, it kind of implies you have to sell something to somebody or you're, you're telling them to do it without reciprocal, you know, um, uh, trust. And so I love what you said. We like, at, and at Art of Coaching, we define buy-in as trust plus commitment. So same, same, uh, I think, end result. Um, yeah, I love, I love what's already been said. Obviously we don't have an app. Um, and, and I think that's what makes what we do difficult and also easier maybe. Um, but I think our problem is that communication, which I think we've all talked about as being this linchpin or very important thing, um, is something that we know is so important. And yet it's so intertwined with our identity that admitting that we're not great at it or that we need to work on it, um, can be very vulnerable. It can be, um, it requires a lot of self-awareness, which is something that I think most, if not all of us need more of. Um, and so our difficulty is finding people that are self-aware enough to admit that they need help with communication to then seek us out and then want to work with us long-term. And so that's a, that's a problem that we'll all probably always fight. Um, I think it's a great problem to try to solve. Um, and I think that what we try to do to combat that is make what we do as tangible and experiential as possible, because things like communication and interpersonal relationships, um, they're not sexy. Like I, we can't, 
it's really hard to like put a cool workout video up on Instagram and, <laughs> you know, get like a ton of engagement. Like it's not really sexy to watch two people have a conversation and like be like, oh, wow, did you see the inflection in that person's voice? So um, our problem is um, slightly different in that like we're trying to, we, we know that once we get people in person, we can create buy-in all day because it's just creating relationships with people. It's getting people to that point where they have admitted that they need help with this particular skill set, that they admit it is a skill set to work on, right? Like I think a lot of us, it's like one of those things where it's like, yeah, I got to work on communication, but you know what? I talk all the time. I present all the time. I'll get better at it over time. And in reality, we know that it is a skill. It is something, you know, uh, we joke that like we wake up married every day and or doesn't make us better spouses, right? So um, uh, our, our task in creating buy-in is how do we take something like this and bring it to the people in a way that there's emotional resonance? So our workshops are the most fun thing in the whole world because you finally get people in person and uh, like we do everything, we teach improv basically is the, is the way that we combat that because as soon as you taste a little bit of your own blood in communication and be like, oh man, I really screwed up that conversation. Or, uh, you know, we, if you struggle asking for a raise, we'll put you in a role-playing situation where you have to ask for a raise and we'll make the other person bring that, you know, that level up to 10 um, when it might not really be like that in real life. That's our form of overload. So I think as soon as people can get in person and feel it, they understand the importance of it. And they understand like, oh man, I'm really not where I need to be with this or where I want to be with it. Um, so that's always going to be, that's always going to be our, our, you know, our, our X factor. But um, yeah, until then, don't, don't look for me on TikTok. I'm not, I don't know if I can do any of the dancing videos that are going to um, create that end user buy-in uh, that way. So we're still problem solving. If anybody has any suggestions, we're all ears. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And um, I think uh, for our people listening in, caught a little bit of a glimpse from each of you on what your product is able to give uh, to anyone who decides to take part in it. So that's really great. And I appreciate that. So last question we're going to have before we get to some of the Q&A, because we got a couple questions. And again, for anybody listening in, please go ahead, throw that in the chat. We'll make sure we do our best to get to each question. You can direct them to all of our panelists, or you can direct them to one panelist, and we'll get to that. But before we do, last question here. What has been the biggest aha moment related to the success of your business or the business you're involved in and moment where you knew like, yeah, you know what? I can do this. This is for me and, and, and I can do this. And I'm going to start with Dan. I'm going to do the same order. I'm going to go back to Josh and then to Allie. I mean, for us, it was the first time we got a check in the mail from a, from a school. Um, it was, I remember this very clearly. It was Middlebury college in Middlebury, Vermont. Um, and we had, they'd been part of our pilot program, uh, which was, hey, we have a thing we think could be really helpful. We've, we've put it together as best we can. We're going to let you use it for about, they're using it for about six months. Um, and then uh, if you like it, we're going to ask you to pay for it. And they said, great, use it for six months. And then they said, we, we want to pay for this. How much does it cost? And I said, $8,000. And whole different conversation about how we picked that price but um and then a check showed up in the mail and i was kind of looking at it like oh okay i guess this is a business now um you know it was a big deal because 
you know, you build something, you really hope it's going to work. You really hope people are going to want it, going to find value in it. And it's really a different proposition to have somebody pay for it than just say, hey, yeah, I'll try it out, right? I'll use it. Let me, let me check this thing out. Um, so when you start getting kind of that, that moment of, of real value, now for us, that was, that was a little while back now. Um, and, and there have been other moments, you know, talk about goalposts moving, right? That was maybe an initial goalpost. Um, and there have been other moments since that, that, uh, that have, have really kind of given me aha vibes. Um, but that definitely early on was a, was a big one. It was a, it was a, a moment of, of, um, authentic, um, you know, verification that we, that we were building something that at least one entity wanted to pay for. Um, I'd say there's one other that comes to mind really, uh, briefly before we went fully remote, uh, during the pandemic. And actually one of the things I missed the most about not being a centralized team anymore, um, are a couple aha moments I had uh, over the last few years where I just looked at our team, we used to all be in one room, I just look across the room. And you'd hear the conversations going on between the engineers, you'd hear the sales folks on the phone, you'd hear, um, you know, our design team working through um, solutioning, you'd, you'd hear our strength and conditioning team, our sport performance team building out programs and talking in it, 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 there's this buzz and this electricity, and you sit there and you go, this didn't exist. This is this is a thing now, and it's and it's a thing that lives and breathes and, and develops on top of its foundation, um, and it becomes an institution. You know, new people come in, they learn how to be a certain way because that's the way that that we've built the company to be, and um, and and you hope that that's for the better. And and it's there, there are moments there where you kind of realize like, this is really cool. There's a bunch of stuff going on that I don't have to necessarily push forward on my own, and all these great people are doing it. Um, and and so that really stands out as well. Yeah, one thing uh, before we get to you, Josh, Dan, I, I been meaning to ask too, and this could be an aha moment as well, maybe even a different one was, um, maybe if you have like a minute or you know two minutes to describe your decision to go to the four day work week, and if that's something that you're continued since, you know, everyone's been working from home now. Yeah, so um, <laughs> this was sort of like an aha. Um, we have to do something about the current situation moment. A little bit different than the aha where you know we're going to make it. Um, so yeah, it was a few months into the pandemic in 2022 or in 2020, um, we were really struggling on Fridays. You know, I remember looking at the screen and I was struggling to maintain my focus. You know, there were, it was a ton of stress in the world, right? Think about strength and conditioning, right? Stress and adaptation, really basic, um, you know, Hans Selye stuff from the, from the textbooks, we were getting stressed to a extraordinary degree, right? As a, as a, as a world, as a globe, as a people, as a company. Um, and we were really burning out on Fridays. I could tell the team just didn't have anything left. And we're kind of spinning around in our chairs, wondering why we we're still sitting in front of this computer when we really were just kind of running on fumes. Um, and so I pitched our leadership team. Um, what if we just took Fridays and gave it back to our employees. Um, and so the idea was to be to create a flex Fridays policy, we called it. Um, and it was pretty simple. It was like, all right, we're going to take everything we used to do over five days, and we're going to reassess what still needs to be done. So if we have standing meetings, we're going to make sure that those meetings are still important, because when you compress your work week, you do lose hours, right? We're going to go Monday through Thursday with the expectation of synchronous work. Um, Friday is completely up to the employee to do whatever they want to do just like Saturday, just like Sunday. And um, what we said was, we're going to do this as long as it, we like it and everyone feels like it's helping them. And we're able to maintain the level of productivity that 
that is required um, at the company. And so um, after a feeling out period of about six weeks, we decided to make it our full-time policy. We're still on it. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. There's, there are some challenges uh, for sure, but overall, you know, think about how important that extra day can be to people, um, depending on what they're trying to do during the pandemic, right? During the, the really hard parts, you know, that meant you could go to the grocery store when there wasn't, weren't very many people there, or you could go hiking on a trail um, where it wasn't crowded, or you could just sleep. If you, you know, think about trying to just put your, your employees, your people in the best position to be successful. Sometimes we had engineers who worked Fridays, they had their best creative focus time because nobody could bother them. Sometimes people would, would take a really long nap. Sometimes they'd go visit their grandmother or play with their kids or, you know, go, go uh, for a bike ride, right? Things that they just wouldn't have done otherwise. And what we found and the feedback we continue to get, because we survey our team every quarter to, to make sure they're still, um, still liking it, is that, you know, you bring a different version of yourself to the office on Mondays um, when you've had enough time to actually recharge. Right. And so we think of ourselves very much in this world of um, of adapting and, and evolving. Right. This is why we all do what we do. That's what entrepreneurship is. Right. Take something that has been a certain way uh, and do it differently. And in this case, taking a look at the schedule on which we worked um, gave us the opportunity to, to kind of rethink what was important and, and how we could set our world up in a way that, that was better for our people. And ultimately, what was going to be better for our people was going to be better for for our company. Yeah, thanks. And I know you've written about that. And Mike, uh, drop that in the chat for anyone that wants to go ahead and give that a read. Uh, Dan's written a little bit about that switch to the four-day week. And uh, Josh, let's pivot back to you now um, about that aha moment or that moment of conviction. Yeah, um, I think the the aha moment for me, um, and, and it probably took me a year or a year and a half to, to figure out, was when I made the leap, I knew I was jumping into a world where I knew nothing about. I knew I was going from something where, at least in my mind, I believed I, I was pretty darn good at it. And I was going to be jumping into something that, by all accounts, I was going to be terrible and just fail at everything. And, um, but the thing that, that, you know, I think I'd convinced myself of, or I thought going in was similar to building a program um so you know i spent seven years at purdue that first year was really really freaking hard you know the second year is still pretty hard third year um but especially by those last you know three years in particular two three years and we'd built a player-led culture um our guys didn't need me like that thing that thing would have operated whether i was there or i was not and if anything i probably just got in the way um you know and uh and so I had that same mindset jumping into this world. And it, it took me, like I said, probably a year, year and a half to figure out that it'll never get easier. In fact, it'll only ever get harder. Um, but it was at that time where I started to learn and get better at how to manage it all. And one of the biggest things was really recognizing that everything can't be urgent. You know, and, and I think especially in those early days, as, as Dan said earlier, you know, you're, you're a small team. So um, you end up wearing just about every hat in the company. You have every job there is. Um, anytime there's a, a quote unquote fire, you know, I have emails at at 3 a.m. 
um, you know, things like that on the weekends, stuff like that. But you start to recognize that some of these things have already happened and there's nothing that you can do about it now other than learn from it, make sure it doesn't happen again. Some of the things can wait. And so, you know, the framework that one of my buddies uh, taught me was this like Eisenhower decision uh, matrix, which is, you know, there are things that are urgent and important. Like those are things that you need to do and you need to do those things right now. There are things that are um, urgent, but not important, you know, meaning that probably somebody else can do it or, you know, it, it just needs to get done. It doesn't necessarily need to get done super well. It just needs to get done. Then you have things that are important, but not urgent, you know, they can wait. Um, and then you have things that are not important and not urgent and it's like eliminate those things. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, that was the big unlock and probably what helped too was around that time. Now our team was growing and I'd spent, you know, a year, year and a half, essentially trying to coach myself out of other roles so that those people who are much smarter and much, you know, better at those things than I am, were able to start to fully take those things on. Thank you. And then uh, Allie, we'll get to you and then we'll hop to the Q&A there. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I just um, I just hit my one year um, anniversary of being out of uh, collegiate strength and conditioning. I survived um, and I sort of had a, a moment of like true overwhelm towards the end of the year. And I was like, man, like, what have I done? Like in terms of like, what have I actually like produced, you know, and like, what, how have I changed? And like, not, not like, what have I done? I don't regret my decision at all. I love what I do. Um, and I was like, I just remember being in the shower and, you know, where all good thinking happens. And, um, uh, I reminded myself that like the reason I took this job and this leap was to, to learn every skill possible. And Brett told me when I jumped in, he's like, He's like, the only, the only rule is be self-competitive and, um, just be a sponge and teach yourself everything. And so I started making a list just like in, in my head and sort of like on the, you know, the side of the shower of like things that I had learned in the past year. And I was like, uh, you know, digital marketing, website building, graphic design, nurture sequences, copywriting, how to build our newsletter, uh, social media, you know, I was like, damn, <laughs> okay, like, um, maybe I haven't done nothing, right? Like, you know, and, and I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm great at any of these things or even necessarily competent, but, um, it, it just like reminded me that entrepreneurship, like you said, and, and I'm still in the early phases, right? So like, I haven't really managed to make it slow down yet, but, um, in terms of what you learn and how quickly you learn it and how much of a, a weapon you can become just by, you saying yes to taking on new roles and new tasks. I mean, these are skills that I think will serve me no matter what role I take on at any point in my life. And I mean, the most important one is how to, how to be a, a good salesperson. And I, I hated that term at the beginning. I like, was like, no, I don't want to sell. I like, please anything, but the sales, like I know. And um, you know, Brett and I had a conversation. He's like, you realize that what you do every day is sales. Like you just talk to people and you create relationships and you solve problems. And we have a really cool product that can solve a lot of problems. And so that's selling. And I think that was the biggest aha moment for me. I was like, okay, like, you know, I can do this because everything I've built up until now is, is 
accumulating into these you know skills that all transfer and um I think that was sort of the aha moment so far um you know I, I think there are more to come but I I I'm so excited by the decision I made and and feel like I'm light years above where I would have been in terms of the skills that I've built so far. Yeah, that's awesome. I think um, earlier this month was my one year as well. Um, so yeah, um, I'm going to pass it off to Mike here. Uh, thank you, all three of you. Awesome, awesome job there. And let's turn it over to Mike for a little bit of the Q&A here and see what uh, some people, our attendees are asking. Awesome. Thanks, Gabe. Uh, first question coming to you, Josh, this is coming from Molly Benetti. What are your tips for building a great team? Um, I think it's also remarkable for you to touch on how big your team actually is um, at Future and all the coaches that you have on staff. So here we go. Yeah, so I mean, we're several hundred coaches now, um, probably 95% all full-time um, and, and a very small, small percentage uh, in the part-time role. So um, it's, it's really been pretty incredible. I would say, you know, to me, where it starts is, you know, understanding what, what is your mission? Like, what are you, what are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to build? Um, and then from there, identifying who are the people um, that you need to ultimately execute that vision. And so for me, it, it starts with the values and, and at future in particular, um, you know, it was, let's lay out like, what are the values that are going to allow us to win, um, in, in our case at a level, you know, nobody's been able to figure out just yet, which is, you know, one day, how do we help, you know, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, um, you know, actually live healthier lives, longer lives, be more active, things like that. And, um, you know, so really spent the time to identify what those, what those values are, um, that, that I believe they would be for us to be successful. And then, um, be ruthless about hiring based upon those values. And so, um, in our case, I, I identified five, which is, you know, others first, be relentless, be a giver, um, positive vibes and like check your vibe, basically EQ and yes. And so I, I love that Allie, when you were talking earlier about improv, cause uh, it's, it's been a big part of um, you know, what we've used to try and build, build our team. And then just be ruthless that the people that you're bringing on board, you see all five of those values, not four or five. And I think that's where probably I've made mistakes along the way is trying to make it fit when, you know, four were there, but the fifth was not, um, and really looking for, in our case, those 51 percenters, um, believing that we can, you know, we can teach them the, the skills that they need, but that 51%, the non-cognitive is the bigger piece. And then, you know, once you get those people um, really identifying what are their strengths, what are the things that can be their superpowers, um, providing them the support to do that. And also, you know, having the, having the humility to, to kind of get out of the way and, and allow them to do those things and um, allow them to, you know, kind of shine brighter than you. And, um, you know, I think that for us and, and probably even going back to Purdue is uh, I would say the, the ultimate mark of, of our success was just like, let all of them shine. And, and in my case, become replaceable. Awesome. That's fantastic. Appreciate the insight there, Josh. Uh, we have two questions left. I'm going to split them up. 
Um, Allie, this one's gonna be from, uh, for you from uh, Lachlan. Um, how have you either recovered from moments of doubt and failure or temper successes or milestones made and not taken uh, the foot off the gas? Are there instances that stick out specifically uh, when looking back? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we kind of touched on this earlier in the sense of like when you're in a small business or an entrepreneur, um, it, it will humble you very fast in that if you take your foot off the gas, um, it's, you know, it, it it reminds you like, whereas I think we talked about it already a little bit earlier that um, there's no season, right? And so uh, that's actually something that I've had to create or boundaries in my own life because I'm the kind of person where I'm like, well, if people are working, I'm going to be working. Like, I, I'm not going to not be working if the rest of the team is up. So, I mean, I've done everything. There are two companies headquartered in um, Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm out here in the Bay Area. So I keep East Coast hours. Um, and, uh, you know, what I've had to do is, you know, there's there's always something to be done, right? And so I think setting very strict boundaries with myself of like, yes, there is more that can be done here. Um, I, and because I work from home too, I think that's something that we've all struggled with during COVID is like, when and where do you shut off? And when do you say like, okay, this is no longer, this is a law of diminishing returns. Like if I stay working on this longer, like this will not make this better. So um, I've had to have that very real conversation with myself a number of times um, because that is a that is a real thing that I think all entrepreneurs probably come up against several times in their careers. You know, this, yep, I I'm I could do more and I want to do more, maybe even, and I also shouldn't do more. Um, and so I think uh having having a, a boss and a mentor that also understands that and reminds me of it frequently is one a very helpful thing. Um, but also, you know understanding and, and reassessing values and knowing that my personal health, um, exercising, going on walks, you know, doing those things, making sure that those are non-negotiable parts of my routine also prevents me from bumping up against some of the other barriers um, that that work, you know, because work could expand to the amount of time that I allot it. So um, that's how I would, that's how I would answer that. But uh, yeah, I mean, there are definitely moments where you're going to, when you're going to brush up against it. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Allie. And I appreciate the fact that it's okay to step away, you know, from the desk a little bit, especially that transition from being a coach, being on your feet for 15 hours a day, and then you're in, in front of a, a computer. So taking a breath and, you know, getting out and moving is, is key. Uh, last question, then I'll flick it uh, back over to Gabe to, to kind of wrap up. Um, Dan, this one's going to be for you. Uh, somewhat in your wheelhouse, right? So how do you stay on top of industry trends? Um, and, and that's coming from Molly Benetti. Yeah, there's probably a lot of different ways to do it these days. Um, I remember the days of RSS feeds, uh, but that's probably not the answer that's going to be helpful in 2022. Um, yeah, there's a couple of great ways to do this, right? So you think about your industry in a lot of different ways. We've got a foot in um, in software and in SaaS in particular. Um, so, so that's an industry that we pay a lot of attention to. We've got a, a foot into sport performance, a foot into kind of general fitness, corporate wellness, uh, tactical readiness, like a lot of these different areas. So, um, you know, some of it is, is, is leveraging social media and, and seeing what's going on. Some of it is showing up to events. Um, 
a little tougher over the last couple of years because uh, you get different value out of virtual events than you do out of uh, out of showing up to events in person. Different ways to do it that way. Um, staying connected to people that you know and care about. Um, building an authentic network. I mean, for me, that's probably the that's the that's one of the things I'm I'm particularly well suited to do. I'm I'm not the best at making a lot of acquaintances, but. I make very close uh, connections and, and tight friendships. And, and so you get a sense from people, you know, well, what they're seeing out in the space, which can be very useful. Um, and then I would say, you know, being involved in these sorts of conversations, um, putting yourself out there, which, which is easy for some people and harder for others. Um, and to just get a, get a sense of that is, is, is a key piece. You can also, depending on how, you know, how important it is to be to be staying in touch with certain parts of, of your industry, right? Like how deep do you want to stay involved in strength and conditioning when you know your full-time job is running a technology company, right? For me, that's always been pretty important. So I, you know, I've gone to NSCA conferences uh, for most of the last 10 years. And I do a lot less of that now. And we send people who can really get more benefit and provide more value in those settings. Uh, but that means that I'm generally showing up more on the business side um, and and figuring out where things are going in the Seattle uh, technology scene, in uh, in sports and fitness tech um, across the uh, across the country and around the world more broadly, um, paying attention to what really interesting companies are doing and and trying to to figure out where it all fits together. Um, and it's it's kind of a it's a daily it's a daily pursuit. You know, it's one of those are no goalposts to to necessarily. Uh, get get to in this particular um, topic. You're kind of always learning. You're always keeping your eyes open and, and thinking about where you're going. But also, you have to really maniacally stay focused on what you are there to do. Uh, there are a ton of different ways you can twist and turn within the industry, and you can see somebody doing something really cool. Like the Future Team does a lot of really cool stuff. I think, oh, we want to do some stuff like that, but that's not necessarily core to what we are here to build. Um, and there are examples of that all over the place. So uh, it's a balance, it's kind of like everything, right? You know, <laughs> you got to stay open to, to, to what's going on out there, but you can't let it overwhelm you, right? You have to stay focused on what you do and go day to day and, and build for your customers and your users and, um, and, and have trust and faith that your strategic direction that you've put yourself on is, is the right one um, and, and only make those adjustments, um, you know, every, every so often and, and rarely. Cool. I well, appreciate that. And uh, we got two more quick questions going to be from us, uh, two little quick hitters. Uh, our first question for the three of you is going to be one good book recommendation. Um, what's a book that you found to be helpful on your journey to where you are now? Josh, I'm going to start with you. I know you've posted a few threads on social media before, uh, and there's a lot of books out there, but is there any one book that you'd really recommend? Um, I'll make it specific to to this discussion. Um, the, I, I think the book that has really helped me learn this world, which, you know, frankly, I, I think uh, there's a lot of value even beyond, you know, towards coaching and leadership, things like that is the hard thing about hard things, uh, which is Ben Horowitz. Um, and, and it talks about, you know, a lot of the the real and raw, um, you know, things that, that you're faced with uh, in, in building a company where, a lot of times there is no right answer and it's not even, you know, choosing the best of shitty answers. Like they're all, they're all terrible and you got to pick one. Um, and so it's just a, a real authentic look at, you know, what this world is 
in my opinion. Yeah, thanks. And uh, for anyone out there listening in, uh, make sure you give Josh a follow. He'll post some pretty good threads and especially related to some book recommendations. He's got plenty of them. So long, long list. So make sure you go over and check out his page. Uh, Allie, how about you? Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I, I have one that um, definitely pertains more to this conversation, um, which is The Practice by Seth Godin. Um, you know, I think he's able to take a lot of complex topics, you know, surrounding business and entrepreneurship and make them simple. Sometimes I'm like, gosh, it's not that simple. Um, you know, but it, that, that book in particular talks a lot about the importance of continuing to show up with creative work and, and put yourself out there and try and fail and creativity. And, and those are things that don't come naturally to me. Um, I, you know, we were talking about you know, defining your own job, <laughs> job role. Um, I'm not a CEO, but I did have the opportunity to, to define my own career title. Um, so I chose director of creative strategy because uh, that was an aspirational title. <laughs> I want to become more creative in my content creation and all those things. So I uh, definitely say that one, but one I just finished and I recommend to everybody is the art of insubordination by Todd Cashton. And um, we actually just had him on our podcast, but it talks all about how to basically be a, a rule breaker and create dissent in a good way, right? Like not purposely to destruct anything, but um, in a way that's constructive. So those are my two. Cool. Thanks, Dan. Uh, all right. I would go plus one on the hard thing about hard things. Really good. I would add if anybody really wants to dive into sort of the startup y, literature. One that everybody kind of has to read is called Lean Startup uh, by Eric Ries, which has been around for a while, at least 12, 15 years. Uh, but just if you have an idea and a thing that you want to maybe pursue, that's a great one to read because it's all about figuring out kind of the cleanest, smoothest, most uh, efficient path to getting something going. And then you can build off of that. So that's one I throw out. But the one that I really recommend if I had only one, and it pertains to this conversation less on the actual business side, a little bit more on the human performance side, but mostly because it's Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, and that's a big topic at Vol HQ these days. We're really upping our own awareness of mental health and the, and the issues that a, that a lot of folks are going through. Um, and I've had my own mental health struggles over the, the last couple of years that I've been writing about and are, are publishing on our blog. Um, but there's a book called Breathe by James Nestor. And it's not directly about mental health. It's not really a self-help book. You can read it, which reading is great. I would recommend the audio book if you like listening to stuff, because when you're listening to a book about breathing, you start paying attention to your breath a whole lot more than you ever have before. And it's a little different than how you pay attention to your breath when you meditate, right? Where you're sort of in that zone and you're, um, you're, you're breathing in and out. It's, it's about why we breathe, how we breathe, the differences between uh, breathing through our nose and through our mouths and, and, and just a lot of interesting interwoven history and science and pseudoscience and hoping to kind of break past a little bit of what I think we might often get stuck in, which is only wanting to stay in a world where there's very defined empirical studies on X, Y, or Z. This is a little bit of that, of, of pushing those barriers, um, but it's really compelling, really fascinating, and, and a, a type of kind of human performance um, literature that is a little different than a lot of things other 
other folks uh, uh, have, have recommended, at least at least to me. So I recommend the audiobook, but the um, book book is also a great option if you would rather uh, use your eyes and not your ears. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that. And Mike looks like you messed up. You're supposed to do the audio, not the uh, physical copy. So I'm a nerd. Yes, like and. <laughs> yes, and. <laughs> um, last question here. Um, something we like to ask our uh, guest panelists on the KES is what does your own training look like right now? Is it practice what you preach? Are you training for something specific or experimenting? Josh, I'm going to start with you. Um, I know over the years you've shared publicly uh, some of your training. If anyone follows you, they know what the uh, weekly rituals look like. Um, can you share your training, uh, what that looks like, each of you? Uh, and then I'll finish. Uh, we'll go in the same order. We'll go with Josh and then Allie and Dan to finish. Thanks. Well, I would say at this point, my, my training is, is nowhere near what it, you know, what it once was, um, back when I was in a weight room every single day. But, um, at this point, my, my biggest thing is just being active every single day. So, um, I have a big like daily deposit. I put it on social media. Um, today was day 844. Um, so, doing something every single day, every Wednesday, every Sunday, I run 10 hills, no matter where I am, no matter, you know, temperature, circumstances, any of that. And, and I think for me at this point, um, a lot of it has become more of a, you know, mindset. And, and in a lot of ways, that's like my mindful time, like that's, that's my meditation, um, things like that. But it's, uh, you know, that mindset to just like, keep showing up and showing up as a skill, um, has really helped me along my journey in the startup world when, you know, most days, especially early on, you have every reason to quit. Um, and so, you know, what, what's going to get you to that next day. And so that's been, that's been my workout, uh, to this point. Go ahead, Alec. Hey, I was, gonna, I don't remember the order, but I'll go. Um, yeah, so nobody tells you when you leave strength and conditioning that you then have to outfit your entire home gym um, by yourself um, and you have to buy everything. So um, the last year has been me procuring said pieces. Um, and as of a couple of weeks ago, I now have the full, I have a rack, barbell, full plates, dumbbells, kettlebells, you name it. So we're finally on track. I, last summer, I actually was like so sick of doing body weight stuff. Um, and it was also COVID obviously. So I was like, I'll run a half marathon. Cause that's, you know, uh, doable. Um, hated that. Uh, but I did it. And now I like, like what Josh said, I mean, movement every day, I walk at least 90 minutes every day. I have a, I have an 80 pound, you heard him, uh, dog who needs a lot of exercise. So I use that as time to take calls, time to think time to listen to podcasts, whatever, whatever it is. And ideas tend to flow. Um, I'm not embarrassed to say that sometimes I do like the Peloton strength workouts just cause I'm not, I'm not in love with programming for myself. <laughs> I've shared this very publicly. I, it's like the only, like, I hate programming for myself. So, um, you know, that, that makes an appearance here or there. So it's very much just do something every single day, sweat every day, basically is my, is my MO. Nice. Yeah. People always ask like, what's the hardest part about your job? I said, writing workouts for myself. So I agree with you, Dan. I have 
an app you guys can try um, called Volt. Download it. It'll program a lot of stuff. See if you like it. Um, so mine is uh, is a similar answer. Actually, it's kind of interesting. I thought I thought that uh, Josh and Allie were going to come with with much more like serious training, and maybe it's just life as as an adult and balancing all the things that you balance. Um, but yeah, mostly walks these days. Um, I'm recovering from a back surgery, which was about five months ago, herniated disc. Uh, and that's been a slow recovery. Yeah, it's 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 something. Uh, slow recovery for me, right? So I've been patient, physical therapy, can do some walks, some mobility. Um, have gotten back to what I used to do, which was a lot of our our training programs. Um, you know, circuit stuff and and set by set, strength and power stuff. Um, but uh, that's that's going to be in my future once I can uh, once I can get my back to where I want it to be. But you know, I really it's really amazing. I used to not any value into walking going for walks walking 20 minutes 40 minutes 60 minutes um i would like to tell my younger self um that it would have been really nice to take a go out for a walk calm down a little bit had that creative time breathe that fresh air listen to something interesting have a conversation with a friend like that it is a it's amazing the value that that can bring um so if anyone happens to be younger and still in the, a world where they are training really hard, you know, I would throw in a walk or two every once in a while. Um, and, uh, and, and just, you know, give yourself some, some time to breathe. Awesome. And Dan, I had a herniated disc, I did surgery in 2016, L4, L5. And I, that is where I discovered walking. It was in, it was in 2016. I, I gave Derman discovered walking. Um, if only, and, we could, if only we didn't have to learn that lesson so painfully. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I'm going to choose, I'm going to take Josh's advice. I'm not going to be empathetic about it. But I'm going to choose compassion for this oh, one. So <laughs> you're going to be all right. So yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Um, but uh, yeah, walking, I highly recommend it. So um, I always think of like the anchor man, right? Like jogging. <laughs> it's a new thing called jogging. But um, anyway, this is, this is really fun. This is great. And um, I feel like we could talk all night about this, but uh, it is the time we had allotted for tonight. So a huge thank you to our attendees that joined us live for the KS. A huge, huge thank you to our three panelists. Uh, they're all brilliant, awesome. We appreciate their willingness to share and their time. Um, please give them a follow on their social media pages. They all do a really great job of sharing quality content. Uh, this discussion will be available publicly on the Kaiser Fitness YouTube page, and the audio will be up on Spotify uh, in about a week or less. Uh, uh, under the Kaiser Education Series. So please give us a follow and also check out any of our other content that we put up so far through the KES. So hope you'll join us in two weeks from now on June 8th for our next KES panel. And thank you everybody and have a great night.